Okay, let's get started. Uh, thank you all for being here today, joining us live uh, here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you for joining online. Uh, it's a pleasure, a special, uh, uh, special thanks to C-SPAN for being here with us today and for sharing this uh, discussion with your viewers. Uh, and a little background, this is the second in a series of conversations being organized by a new group called the American Maritime Security Initiative. Uh, it's a joint project of the Hudson Institute and the Navy League's Center for Maritime Strategy. The group is focused on uh, the national and economic security challenges we face in dealing with China uh, as it relates to the commercial maritime industry. Uh, shipping is at the intersection of trade and transportation, of national security and economic security. Uh, our first conversation in this series was, was with Admiral Mark Busby, uh, who focused his discussion on sea lift and national security, and, and you can find that discussion on the Hudson website. Uh, the focus today is on shipping and economic security, and particularly the concern that China might have or obtain the power to weaponize, and that's an overused term these days, but I'll use it to weaponize control over uh, the international maritime supply chains. Uh, most experts would say that if that were to happen, if China were to gain that power uh, and use it, uh, the potential harm to the American and global economy could be catastrophic. Uh, so we are delighted uh, to have with us today Chairman Peter DeFazio, who represented uh, Oregon's fourth congressional district, the Purple District along the coast. He began congressional service in 1987 and retired just 10 years, uh, 10 weeks ago at the beginning of the current Congress. Um, he served on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee for his entire tenure and, uh, uh, and was chairman of the committee, which is the largest committee in Congress uh, for the last four years. Many accomplishments over 36 years, uh, Mr. Chairman. We don't have the time to go <laughs> over, over into many of them, but I can say from personal experience uh, that I've uh, always appreciated your, your deep understanding of the maritime industry and, and, and among many other subjects. So thank you very much for your service in Congress and, and your commitment to doing the job the right way, uh, and welcome. Thanks, Mike. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks how, for how the was opportunity. How is retirement so far? Uh, it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we're going to get right into the conversation, and, and the door we're going to use to get into it is, is on trade policy. And this is going to sound a little bit like a confrontational question, but I'll ask it anyway. You, you told me earlier that uh, you opposed every free trade agreement uh, uh, that came before Congress in your 36 years. You might have found one or two that were okay, but, but all, third, all of them, and, and that included uh, most favored nation uh, treatment for China and China's accession then into the WTO in, in 2001. Can you tell us why? Tell us what your thought process was. Well, I studied economics in, uh, in uh, college and graduate school. Um, and to me, the theory of uh, comparative advantage didn't make much sense in the 20, 20th century or now in the 21st century. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of our trade has been based on that. Uh, and secondly, uh, a lot of our trade was colored by our, you know, Coming out of World War II, uh, where we had the Marshall Plan, we were the only industrial uh, power in the world. We controlled the seas, and it was like, okay, well, we, you know, we'll allow a lot of concessions to other nations in order to move things along. But it really came to a point uh, with me with NAFTA. Uh, you know, Clinton and Gore selling it, oh, 500, 600,000 jobs in the U.S. 
And then I looked at, you know, Mexico's total GDP, uh, if they spent every penny on American goods was less than the state of New Jersey. And I said, how is that going to create five or 600,000 jobs here? It isn't. It was all about going across the border uh, to uh, access cheaper labor, lack of environmental standards. And then Clinton was having trouble passing it. And finally, since uh, labor and environmental standards weren't in it, uh, they adopted uh, non-binding side agreements to get some Democrats to vote for it, and it passed, but not by a huge margin. So, uh, you know, in the EU, they did things differently. When Portugal wanted to come in, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're low wage, uh, you know, your court system, your labor protections, your environment, you've got to bring all those things up before you can join. Uh, and they did. Uh, and the EU made them, it took quite a period of time to exceed. We just instantly said, okay, here's a country that there's really not much rule of law, no judicial system, no labor protections, uh, no uh, environmental enforcement, and we're going to enter into a borderless agreement with them regarding the production of goods. It was just, it was just a way to outsource. Uh, and then when China came along, um, you know, with, with Clinton, uh, we would just come out of the Soviet Union, it collapsed. And so it was this sort of, you know, 10 years before. So it was this rosy period of, you know, uh, okay, uh, democracy and capitalism is ascendant. Uh, and, you know, uh, we will bring China along. We'll bring them into this, into this uh, by, you know, allowing them to have uh, MFN status, permanent MFN status, uh, and then exceed them to WTO and they'll follow the rules. Well, I never believed they'd follow the rules. And, of course, they haven't. Uh, and, uh, you know, at least before when we had MFN on a limited basis, most favored nation status, uh, we could set the time period uh, over which we would renew it and say, okay, well, if in two years you don't deal with these abuses, we're not going to renew your status. But we made it permanent. And we made it permanent because the U.S. companies who wanted to move to China, which had even cheaper labor, uh, wanted assurances that their investments would be protected indefinitely. So we made it permanent, and that was a huge mistake. So, so granting full trading rights to China was a mistake. Over indefinitely, you know, by, by going to, uh, you know, what we now call normal, you know, normal trade uh, relations. Normal, right. Yeah, I've used right. to call MFN. Right. And I think there's a way to deal with that, actually. Uh, you know, and I, I would reconsider moving them either back to uh, an, an annualized or, you know, multi-year most favored nation status or even revoking uh, their PNTR. Uh, and we've already imposed a Section 301 tariffs on them. Uh, and we've found that those tariffs did not cause a huge run-up in price here because they manipulate their currency down and a lot of their industries are subsidized. Uh, so, um, you know, the added tariffs that would come out of moving them from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 uh, by saying, no, you're, you don't have that until you clean your act up, um, you know, would not be a huge inflationary uh, increase here in the United States, uh, you know, by, by any counts mm -hmm. for consumers. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the assumptions that under, you, you mentioned you didn't trust that China would do what they said, and the assumptions uh, that were offered in... in selling the, uh, the China uh, free trade deals uh, were that um, uh, China would democratize, right. that they would, uh, that you know, economic freedom would, and prosperity would cause China's Communist Party to share power, uh, and certainly we assumed that China wouldn't turn on America uh, the way it has in the last few years. Uh, th those don't seem like very good assumptions at this point. 
No, those assumptions have all been proven to have been uh, mistakes at the time. And again, like I say, it was really, I think it was just sort of the glow of, it was like the glow after World War II when we allowed discriminatory uh, trade policies to be put in place against the United States. And I mentioned one to you earlier that most people don't know about. Uh, most of our competitor nations have a value-added tax. That's where they raise their money. Uh, they are all allowed under the General Agreement Trade and Tariffs, now under the WTO, to rebate that entire value-added tax to their manufacturer when they export a good. But in the 1950s, we allowed GATT to say, you can't do that with income taxes. Income taxes cannot be rebated. That violates the general agreement on trade and tariffs. So we put ourselves at you know, an extraordinary disadvantage as long as you know, we're taxing corporations. And then we've been trying to deal with that. Well, we're going to lower the corporate tax rate. Well, of course, then that lowers federal revenues. Uh, and you know, so we, we've, we've created this whole problem uh, by allowing that to happen. And the same thing. Uh, when China exceeded, you know, later, it, we were in the, the glow of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Oh, yeah, they, they, will, they will move in the direction of, you know, of, of capitalism and uh, democracy, but it didn't work. That's, that's caused uh, questioning in a lot of different areas um, uh, of our relationship. The, the focus today is on, on the shipping. Right. Uh, and uh, you, uh, you led the subcommittee on Coast Guard and, and Maritime and Merchant Marine which has jurisdiction over the regulation of ocean shipping and, and, uh, and the merchant marine, except as it relates to national security, which is an interesting caveat that we don't necessarily need to get into because it seems to me that ocean shipping is critical to national security, as, as, as we've discussed. But in any event, the, the supply chain crisis of the last couple of years fell squarely within the jurisdiction of your committee. Uh, and, uh, and Congress uh, eventually, you, your committee approved and, and the House passed and the Senate passed uh, legislation, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, uh, to, um, uh, to respond to that. What are your thoughts about the supply chain crisis and, and that legislation? Well, it was an immediate crisis. Um, you know, we had ships, 100 ships waiting to get into L.A. Long Beach. Uh, you know, it was causing, you know, that containers went to from a few thousand bucks or two thousand bucks to twenty thousand dollars a container, um, and the shipping companies didn't want to uh, wait to load agricultural goods or U.S. goods and go back. They were happy to just take empty containers and go back. Uh, there were all sorts of abuses uh, that were being uh, being uh, put upon uh, you know the American industry. You know that the we had basically gone through a series of deregulations over time. Uh, that relate to shipping. And let, let, let me just go way back, you know, 1882. Secretary of the Navy William, William Coleman, any nation that relies on another nation for its supply of ships loses in peacetime its commercial independence and in time of war places its very existence at the mercy of the powers which control the ocean. That was 1882. And then in 1920, we adopted the Merchant Marine Act, the Jones Act, uh, which we've, we've talked about, and I think we need to talk about a little bit more. Um, you know, World War II, you, you know, up to lead up to World War II and that, uh, we had a U.S. Maritime Commission, it built, uh, you know, 6,000 ships, um, you know, and then we, at the end of World War II, we started to pull back. The ships were becoming obsolescent. We sold a lot of them overseas. They went under foreign flags. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, and we were, but we were giving subsidies to U.S. flags uh, so they wouldn't have to compete with really cheap foreign labor and the lack of other uh, 
issues uh, when they're under flags of convenience. And then Reagan uh, took away the subsidies and basically the, most of the rest of the U.S. fleet got sold uh, overseas. And then finally, uh, John McCain in 1997 uh, passed the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And here's the premise of that. Uh, this is to achieve a competitive and efficient ocean transportation system, um, you know, a policy that would put greater reliance on the marketplace. Well, we've done that, and now we have three conglomerates that control 95% of the U.S.-Asia uh, trade. So, you know, the marketplace has created these conglomerates. They had inordinate power. Uh, they were doing very abusive things. Uh, you know, they have demurrage charges. One company controls the, you know, the the uh, the, the, the the truck beds to take the containers off the port. Uh, they said you can only use ours. Uh, you know, and um, and so, but then they had containers sitting on them, and they were charging people demurrage because their containers were sitting on them. There were all sorts of abuses. So. We were really focused on the economic crisis. It wasn't a time when we could really focus on the longer term, how do we rebuild American maritime. Uh, we wanted to deal with the, the impacts of inflation and uh, supply chain at that point in time. So that's, that's how the bill got shaped, in a, in a crisis. In a crisis. Um, so we pointed out in some of our work, and we've discussed, the, the, the fact that unlike uh, air transportation and tele telecommunications and other critical network industries. Uh, there are no American shipping companies in the top 25 globally. There are just 85 U.S. flag ships uh, trading internationally out of a global fleet of something like 50,000. Uh, these are the companies and the ships that carry, uh, transport just about everything, our commodities, our manufactured goods, uh, our, our uh, intermediate goods, which is parts for everything else. Um, uh, and, and because there are no large American international shipping companies and so few American ships, uh, we have essentially no control over that maritime supply chain, that logistics supply chain carrying all this stuff. We're just customers in that, in that deal. And so our consumer economy depends entirely on international ship. The, the international, this is, I'm, I'm pontificating here, please excuse me, but uh, the, the shipping equivalent of Uber. Uh, and there are almost no American cars and uh, American drivers or companies involved in this business. Was this discussed much during the, your work on, on the Ocean Shipping Reform Act? No, again, as I told you, this wasn't right. um, where we were dealing with the longer-term problems. I mean, I had dealt with that. You know, the Jones Act is the last vestige of maintaining a U.S. shipbuilding industry mm -hmm. uh, and having, you know, it, but it has to be port to port uh, in the U.S. And that has been under constant attack and was under constant attack when I was chairman of the committee and before I was chairman of the committee. Because there are groups who claim, oh, this just drives up costs for American consumers. Puerto Rico has made a run on it a number of times, even though we have, uh, you know, a, a GAO report that says, you know, actually uh, Puerto Rico is advantaged by having a dedicated fleet of Jones Act vessels, modern vessels, uh, and because they, are, they need regular service from the U.S. for a whole lot of things. And if they didn't have that, they would be at the end of a very long international shipping chain controlled by three conglomerates, and they are a minuscule market. They would not be particularly interested in providing uh, you know, things on a daily, timely, weekly basis uh, to Puerto Rico. Uh, but still, um, you know, 
we've had like uh, there was just a recent even under the Biden administration after uh, you know after the last hurricane there was this oh they need diesel they need diesel um, actually I talked to the Puerto Rico representative and she said there's no diesel shortage and and so the administration under being pushed by a small group of members of Congress uh, who were claiming that this was a problem uh, waived the Jones Act for ship that was already in transit, uh, loaded uh, with, with crude uh, from the United States, uh, and it was a foreign flagship, and they were allowed to divert to Puerto Rico. And the total wages f on that ship for the crew are one merchant mariner. Uh, for the, the U.S., one merchant yeah. Mariner. So, but they're always they're always pushing and pushing and, and pushing. And so, what, yeah. so generally, in my time in Congress, I've been on the defense. But I think people are now starting to wake up, and it's time to go on the offense and begin to have much more serious conversations about, um, you know, what's going to happen when we went to uh, war in the Persian Gulf. We had to use foreign flag ships, uh, you know, because we've got you know the ready reserve fleet, which is pretty decrepit. That, I mean, that's the first place to start. Rebuild, revitalize, and modernize, and we're doing a little tiny bit of that. We finally got one of the Merchant Marine Academies, a new ship, they had a 60-year-old ship. But we need to really focus on these things. We can build these ships here, and we can do a really good job. Yes, they are going to be more expensive, but you get all of the spillover effects into our economy when you build those things here as opposed to buy them from overseas, you don't get any of those added effects. You don't create the jobs and the other economic activity, the suppliers and all those things that go into these ships. And I'll use one other example, if I might. Sure. Um, and I fought this one out, because uh, the Jones Act stuff is very important. The wind industry, they're getting massive subsidies. We're gonna have all sorts of wind inserted in the ocean around the United States. And um, they, they, right now, the only insertion ships are foreign, but Dominion Resources is building one, and other U.S. manufacturers, uh, other companies would build them if they knew there was going to be a market and they could compete. These are all within our territorial waters. They should all fall under the Jones Act. Uh, and I actually went uh, three or four years ago to the wind industry and when we were doing the Coast Guard bill, and I said, look, just let me do this. If if we'll have a five-year window, and if in five years, because basically they contract out about five years for this wind insertion, there are there are qualified U.S. manufacturers uh, ships available and crews where the Jones Act is going to apply, and they initially agreed, but then the American Petroleum Institute got a hold of them and said, no, you can't do that because we got a waiver many many years ago, and we're doing all of our stuff in the Gulf with foreign flags and foreign crews, and it's way cheaper. So um, that's the question. Do we value creating jobs, economic security, or are we just going to chase you know, the cheapest service? And in the context of China, I think that's a very relevant question here. And, and I completely mm -hmm. are, are on board with what you've said about domestic shipping trades. And, but but in, you talk about the international shipping industry and, and the, the really small American involvement in, the, in that system. In a sense, the bigger concern is maybe what you alluded to in, in your quote uh, 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 from 1882, which is that if, if the country doesn't control its, its uh, international shipping uh, uh, industry, it's in trouble. And, and so 
it, the trouble here is not just that we don't control it. It's, it's, I think the bigger concern is the growing dominance of China and China's involvement throughout the system. And that reflects the stated objective of President Xi Jinping going back 10 years ago when his first, uh, uh, one of his first speeches to the Politburo, which is we're going to make, we're going to make China a, a global powerhouse when it comes to the maritime industry, the full range of industries, because every country in history that does that uh, grows and succeeds and does better, and every country that backs away from uh, the, the maritime industry and the seas uh, declines. Sure. And, and so that's the that's belt, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And, right. You know, one of our assumptions has been um, we have all these foreign flagships that some of them are our allies. Or, you know, and we can depend upon them if, you know, to carry our goods or carry our troops uh, and, you know, when, when in a time of conflict. Uh, but the Chinese are, you know, spotting themselves all around the world, a hundred ports now, uh, and they're, they're getting influence uh, in those countries which control the foreign flags. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's less and less likely that we're going to easily be able to call on uh, many of these countries in a time of crisis or these foreign flags and say, uh, hey, uh, we've, we've got to move our troops. Uh, I, we've, we've got a problem. We need to move our, our agricultural goods overseas. We can't get, we can't get, uh, we can't get shipping. Um, the, the Chinese are being very, very deliberate about this. And some of them they're putting in very strategic places right by the Suez Canal, uh, you know, you know, did you, did, did, Djibouti. Djibouti, yes, yep. sorry, Djibouti, uh, and now Haifa. Uh, they've got a contract to run the port at Haifa where the Sixth Fleet is domiciled, and now they're going to know the movement of everything in and out of that harbor. And we yeah. and we didn't even get into cranes yet. We might yep. want to go yep. there. Okay, well, I've got a few data points I want to run by you. <laughs> Stop me anytime, but uh, China. State-owned shipping company, uh, Costco Shipping, is uh, gunning to become the top container carrier in the world. It's one of the three uh, conglomerates you mentioned. Again, no American company in the top 25. China has half the global order book for ship construction uh, compared to less than 1% for U.S. shipyards. 96% of shipping containers are made in China. Uh, around 80% of shipping cranes, gantry cranes, uh, Ship to shore cranes are made in China, and the Pentagon is concerned these cranes can be used to spy on our supply chains. Um, another U.S. government agency is concerned that all of this data is, is being combined with other shipping data and giving the Chinese the ability to track just about any container uh, cargo shipments anywhere in the world, including shipments of U.S. military cargo. Uh, you mentioned the, the uh, Beijing having a foothold in 100 ports in 63 countries and, and, and a growing share of the marine uh, finance and insurance business, which of course is one of the hooks that we relied on or tried to rely on to impose and, and enforce sanctions on Russian oil. So, how, I mean, how should we react to all of this? <laughs> well, I already suggested earlier that uh, we may want to, uh, you know, and there is legislation pending in Congress uh, introduced by uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, to reconsider, uh, you know, permanent, uh, you know, normal trade relations with China. And the question is, what do you move to? Uh, do you move back to, uh, you know, a conditions and time-limited uh, approval subject to them, uh, you know, changing their behavior? Or do you take the even bigger step of, you know, pulling the whole thing out uh, and saying, look, there's so much abuse going on here. Uh, 
you know, that, that we're going to move you to the same schedule of tariffs that we have uh, for Russia, uh, which is generally up from an average of 3% to an average of 34%, except with the renminbi going down uh, and, and all that. I mean, it isn't going to become anywhere near 34%. Uh, and I think I mentioned earlier when there was a, you know, there was a lot of press about this. There's a Buick made in, uh, in China. And uh, when Section 301 was applied, it's 24% tariff. They said, oh, my God, the prices are going to go up by $8,000 here in the United States. Well, no, the renminbi went down, and the Chinese subsidized the industry, and the price of the Buick imported into the U.S. actually went down, despite the 24% tariff. So um, it seems like we're going to need a really, really substantial uh, club uh, to deal with this, and we can't let it go on much longer. Uh, and at that point, we will be totally captive. Well, so, so just to sort of take you uh, to recent action, the, the, the microchip uh, act, uh, um, you know, the, the U.S. market share of microchip manufacturing went from 25 or whatever it went from down to uh, roughly 10 or 12 percent. I mean, it was, it was getting lower and lower, and uh, we're relying on Taiwan, we're relying on South Korea, and increasingly on China for certain chips. And, and the Congress decided that's not a good place to be. But we had at least 10% of the market share there. Is, is there uh, thinking about that in terms of the maritime industry, the American maritime industry, yes, we have to get better relations with China, a, 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 a firmer uh, footing for the economic and the, the trade side of things. But in terms of starting to regain uh, some footing for the American maritime industry, uh, you know, we're below 1% now. Is there, is there a path? that we could, should be considering uh, that would get us toward a more meaningful uh, market share? Well, I think there is some minimal number of U.S. flag um, international you know, carriers that we, should, that we need uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, and like I say, we used to, um, you know, well, we built a lot of the bottoms from World War II. Uh, then we used to give them a subsidy to deal with, uh, you know, the fact that they're competing against this uh, incredibly inexpensive uh, foreign labor, and uh, and the other things with flags of convenience. So I I, I think we had need to have, and I, I think that uh, this may be a conversation that's you know armed services, homeland, more than the transportation infrastructure committee to talk about what is the minimal. Uh, merchant fleet we need. I mean, if we're, you know, just let's just assume that our, you know, that what's worked in the past is like with the Persian War, that we can go to uh, some of these foreign flags and say, hey, we need these ships, and they provided them. But let, what, let's maybe make the assumption with the Chinese growing influence in many of these countries with the foreign flags, that the, there's, if a conflict's coming, they might just influence those c countries not to cooperate with us. Yeah. I think we should be making that assumption and, yeah. and talk about what's our minimum, what do we need? I mean, I started with the ready reserve fleet. I mean, that, that's an easy thing. I mean, that is there specifically for the military. Row, row ships, uh, they need to all, you know, we need to increase the supply there and we need to update those ships. I mean, that's, that's like a basic starting point. And then we have to emphasize, you know, training uh, mariners in this country too. Yeah, we have a big workforce challenge there. Also, I think the uh, uh, Admiral Busby talked about the sea lift need, which is now we have 85 ships in international trade. Uh, he put the number at 250 as being mm -hmm. a reasonable number to really cover what a, a, a realistic sea lift requirement would be 
uh, in light of what you mentioned in, uh, in terms of foreign flag uh, uh, balking, uh, ships not not responding, and uh, and attrition. Uh, these are these are contested. Uh, these would be operating in contested um, waters and then with, without U.S. total dominance of the airspace, so we would lose ships. Um, and we need, so we need a lot more ships, um, and we need some ships for, for what we're talking about here, which is the economic side yeah. of things. And we, we, we need to question the basic uh, concept of, uh, you know, flags of convenience. Yeah. I mean, Mongolia now is, is getting a lot of revenue through flags of convenience. Okay, so you know, and, and I did. I hadn't realized that one. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's a new thing for them, but they're, okay. they're, they're you know they don't have too much shipping, but <laughs> but um, you know a number of years ago when I was pushing hard on this, particularly with the cruise lines who are you know massive amounts of American passengers, all foreign flagged, um, and I said, so you're flagged in Liberia, and Liberia happens to be a the registry is uh, somewhere in I think it's Herndon with a bunch of ex. Coast Guard uh, flag officers are the registry for Liberia. But it's really great because it's really cheap. Uh, you, know, you avoid taxes, you have, you know, your registration fee is really low, uh, you know, you're not held to our standards in terms of crew and, and equipment and all those sorts of things. And so I said, so what happens the next time someone hijacks a, a cruise liner on the high seas? You're going to call the Liberian Navy to come and assist? <laughs> there is none. So, I mean, this is, this is an absurdity, what we've allowed to happen here. And it almost happened in aviation. They started to try and do it in aviation. Something called Norwegian Air uh, relocated, based itself in Ireland with weak labor laws, and they were going to fly planes to the U.S. crewed by uh, Malaysian pilots uh, and Singaporean flight attendants under contract. Uh, and and said that you know they were going to try and create flags of convenience. Luckily, uh, you know the uh, uh, you know they they collapsed uh, you know uh, at, during the pandemic. But um, you know this is a, a model we do not want to replicate anywhere else. It's been a failure for us. I mean, imagine if we lost the U.S. Uh, heavy lift fleet. We have what's called the the civ civilian reserve. I mean. Air fleet, and we subsidize the wide-body planes to a, a, a certain extent, so that we can call on them to carry our troops overseas because we don't have enough airlift ca capacity in the air force to mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, these are all uh, just big red flags that are being waved. Yeah, yeah. I, you, your your point about the aviation industry and the differences there is really important point. The, the aviation industry is structured totally different than than the maritime industry. The maritime industry, if you're sort of willing and able uh, to meet certain safety standards, you're, you're eligible to operate in international trade. You can, you can bring... Uh, you, yeah, but there's questions whether they really meet those standards well, there's, a lot there's of times. You know that. Sure that. I'm sure that's true. Um, uh, but in, in aviation, there's a, a, a controlled system. It's competitive. It's a very, very competitive system. Um, uh, but, um, but, it's, uh, but it's also controlled. So, and, and so if, if an American... Uh, America gets landing rights in a country or vice versa, it's an American flag airplane mm -hmm. that uh, gets those rights and not, not, a, not a flag of convenience um, right. uh, airplane. And that's just not the way the international shipping but, system but, but works. But back to the flags of convenience. Um, I was fought uh, and we got involved in a scandal in the Philippines about 10 or 12 years ago where anybody could buy papers at any level. Uh, you, know, you want your captain's papers? 
There you go. You're a captain now. Uh, and uh, they, were, they were running this marketplace. It finally got clamped down on. But you're saying, yeah, all flags of convenience that does Mongolia send out uh, people to inspect their ships and their crews and assure that, you know, we can do a lot more port inspections and we could do a lot more enforcement on this side and say, if you're coming in and under one of these suspect flags of convenience from a country that, like Liberia, that, you know, hardly exists or others, uh, we're going to subject you to, you know, we're going to see, we want to see the credentials of these mariners. We were going to inspect the condition of the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are, we've been doing very little of that. That's something else we could do to fight the flags of convenience plague. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned um, uh, American allies. I mean, it's, it, it seems to me that when, when you look at the total system, getting back to China here and the, and the concerns we have around the degree to which they have control over so many segments of the international shipping supply chain from shipbuilding to crane construction to information to operating the ships and crewing them and and so on um, that uh, you know that, that that to me is a is a major concern from an economic security standpoint they could decide if, if they have the power if they acquire the power to to uh, exert control over over that supply chain uh, can we trust that they wouldn't use it uh, to our disadvantage in, in, at some point in the future. Well, yeah, over Taiwan, for instance. Yeah. Um, no, uh, we certainly can't. And they say, well, uh, don't worry, it would hurt the Chinese a lot, uh, you know, because, you know, economically they're, they're exports. Um, but, you know, that is a country that is very rigidly, very rigidly controlled. Uh, you know, and, and just coming uh, out of COVID lockdowns. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, they have things like they monitor, they facial recognition, they monitor you. You know, if you if you cross the street when you're not supposed to, and you add up points, and after a certain level, you lose rights, or your kids lose rights to go to school. I mean, the the, the level of control is extraordinary. Uh, in the U.S., I mean, if suddenly all these goods disappeared. Uh, you know, then, uh, you know, some, there would yeah, be havoc. There would be. Uh, I mean, the, you know, so uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't believe that they wouldn't use uh, that tool as they get more and more and more dominant. And it seems to me that it's something that could sort of escalate. You could start at a certain level. They could start at a certain level imposing economic pain and ratchet it up depending on how things go. And ultimately, if they, you know, I think a ca if they completely shut down the system, it would be catastrophic for everyone, but again, as you say, they can absorb that. Uh, their political system is <laughs> designed to absorb that, unfortunately, um, and hopefully it would never come to that. But but that that to me is the concern about uh, not uh, about just sort of accepting that Chinese control over. Right. Well, so again, much back power to there. my premise on conditioning MFN or PNTR. Uh, people say, oh, wait a minute, we don't, we, okay, well, we'll say it's going to happen two years from now or three years from now. Meanwhile, you develop other right. sources. Right. Uh, you know, I had this fight. There was a, a, a Chinese uh, rail company totally owned by the, uh, you know, the People's Revolutionary Army. And um, they were sending in uh, totally subsidized uh, light rail cars and trying to take over the whole U.S. market. They also were going into heavy rail and trying to take over heavy rail. They, they put uh, the Australian heavy rail people out of business in short order. And I finally uh, was able to get uh, an amendment on a, on a bill 
uh, to say that they could have no further contracts in the United States because it was, a, you know, basically it, it was a state-owned uh, company mm -hmm. that was not fairly competing. And by the way, the stuff wasn't very good. And we also had security concerns about have them tracking people and things and, you know, and, and all that. So, mm -hmm. uh, but they're very clever. Uh, and they had uh, based uh, the, their two manufacturers, one with buses, one with trains, in the districts of very powerful members of Congress who fought, you know, because they had 400 jobs. I mean, they, they could be thousands of jobs making these things, but they had 400 jobs taking off the shrink wrap and doing a little bit of assembly. And, uh, you know, and, and so I couldn't uh, end their existing contracts. Uh, and now they're going around to transit districts. Uh, the, their transit districts that they already have are going around and saying to other transit districts, we'll subcontract with you, and you can get this cheap Chinese stuff that's totally subsidized. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there are, this is going to be a very difficult, a very difficult uh, struggle. I, I think when we talk about the maritime supply chain piece of this, it's important. To, supply chain and logistics is a, are broad terms that mean lots of different things to, to um, uh, depending on who you're talking to and what the issues are. And, and the supply chain and, and logistics issues we're talking about here are not a, a, about a specific type of commodity or product. It's not microchips or refined rare earths or, or HIMARS rockets. It's the transportation system that brings all of this stuff mm -hmm. to us. That right. that we're, we're our concern is that 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 is outside of our control right. and in the control. And what so and what little and what little we're exporting back, right. particularly like I say during the crisis, the right. ag people were hit really hard. Yep. Yep. And again, back to just back to China when when they were going for MFN, uh, they allowed in a a big shipload of wheat, and I had the. Uh, the wheat farmers, they weren't in my district, but Eastern Oregon, big, big wheat country. And they came in and said, look, this is gonna be a huge new market for us. We've never been able to get in there before. And, but at the same time, I had uh, received a translated uh, radio broadcast internally in China uh, by a trade minister saying, don't worry, we are not gonna become dependent upon the United States for our food supply. Uh, and you know what? Um, after that one ship went in, and they got MFN. Uh, the next year, the same ranchers came in to see me, and they all sat there kind of hangdog, and they said, well, are you going to say it? And I said, say what? Are you going to say, I told you so? And I said, no, I'm not going to say that. I said, we've got to fix this, because uh, they started using phytosanitary barriers. They don't, they don't do this. I mean, they do this in so many ways, saying, oh, no, your wheat isn't clean enough for us, so you can't bring it in anymore. So I mean, this is a, this is a real, um, real dilemma. Yeah. Um, well, I, I appreciate uh, the conversation. We got we've got some time for questions. Let me. Um, um, uh, I, I think it's a really important uh, conversation and discussion. Uh, I don't think that there are easy answers. This has been going on for such a long time, and and uh, sort of turning the corner uh, and and heading getting the ship pointed in the right direction is 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 going to be. It take a lot of a lot of work and a lot of patience, but uh, sure. I really appreciate your leadership on this through through the years, and it, it, it just sort of opened up anything you'd like to add. I'd love to take some questions. That's, we're okay. better with questions. Okay, great. Come on. Let me open it up to questions from the audience. In the back. Uh, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about cargo preference. There's been an effort by 
our own government and even a movement within Congress to try and use those same flags of convenience for government for taxpayer purchase cargo, uh, particularly from USAID and some of these other yeah. uh, food aid agencies. Could you talk a little bit about that and what do you think would get these agencies and even some folks in Congress to change their tune on cargo preference? Yes, we've had to fight that uh, because uh, the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, get involved and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We could, uh, we could supply more uh, at a lower price if we use these foreign flag ships. Um, and uh, you know, that's been an ongoing off and on struggle over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Uh, you know, I mean, and cargo preference uh, definitely needs to be uh, tightened up. More questions? Wow. The microphone is going to give you a microphone. <laughs> Just thinking as we're talking on all of this, I mean, as you said, we have become very, very dependent on China, right? We can go into any store within a mile of here and find 100 million things made in China. Uh, and so obviously we're, like as consumers, very dependent on these things now. So um, not really trying to be confrontational. Just how do you balance that? Because uh, obviously there are national security concerns. There's also concerns to consumers. So which do we take more seriously? Yeah. Good question. Very good question. Well, the question is, can, can we uh, mitigate it and balance it and, and deal with the, I think the national security has to ultimately trump. Uh, but, but you have to figure out how we're going to get there uh, because of the dependence. Now, um, you know, there are, you know, People are beginning to reshore uh, under policies that have been adopted by Biden, and the CHIPS Act is going to cause reshoring with incentives. Uh, others have just decided to reshore because they experienced that meltdown during COVID, and they say, well, this could happen again. Uh, so they're, they're reshoring to some extent. Uh, but you know, we also have to be looking at other you know, areas of the world uh, who are not hostile to the United States. Uh, as potential uh, suppliers in the future. And, you know, that will take, that's going to take time. It's going to take time here to, to, you know, get back up in chip manufacturing and other areas. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had, had this fight numerous times over the percent of a transit vehicle that would, had to be manufactured in the U.S. And every time we would raise it, uh, you know, all of the, uh, uh, you know, all the transit people would say, oh, my God, we've been told that there will be no more buses. There'll be no more, like, and, you know, and we, we've managed to overcome it and, and find substitutes. And, but we, we, did it, we didn't do it, say, okay, today it's going up to 75%. It was, you know, three years, you know, over three years, five years, we're going to move up to 75%. And as you move up, people move into those niches and say, okay, we can supply that, we can supply this, we can supply that. But right now, if they don't see any potential for a market, uh, they're not going to make the investment. And it's just like what, what happened with, uh, with protective equipment. Uh, you know, that was, if that wasn't a wake-up call. Uh, and it turned out during the, the pandemic, I found out that, that uh, a guy in Texas, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, had bought uh, an old 3M plant, and he had six lines. He could make uh, masks. Uh, N95s, and only one was running. And so then I went to Homeland Security and I said, hey, g give this guy a contract, but you've got to give him a contract that says we'll buy this much over this period of time 
And if we don't use it all, we're going to put it in a strategic stockpile because we might need it again. But you are guaranteed this purchase. Uh, and, you know, they kept going around and around. Finally, I got them to, they finally did a contract with them for dentists, you know, uh, for dental offices, sort of, but not as big. And so that's part of the key here is, you know, assuring uh, through, you know, you know, and some people don't want to talk about it, but, you know, through uh, industrial policy. Uh, that you know these markets are going to be there. Yeah. A, a very good question, and, and and I appreciate your response. The other thing I would add is that when you look at some of the things we're talking about on on the on the maritime side, again the the uh, the, the market share that we see, for example, container construction, ninety six percent in China, eighty percent on ship to shore cranes. We wouldn't tolerate that in this country under the antitrust laws. We wouldn't tolerate that kind of concentration. Uh, and, and yet, because they're outside the United States and, and, and different corporate entities, I'm sure, uh, that, you know, we, we seem to be sort of paralyzed to do anything about that. I mean, if everybody played by the same rules and, and, and so on, that, you know, there might not be the kinds of issues we're dealing with now, but they don't. But that's my impression. Well, state-owned enterprises should, you know, right. I mean, we can and should. Uh, be, you know, tariffing, uh, you know, under, we can do that under existing law. Uh, more regularly, state-owned enterprises bringing things into this country. I mean, that's the People's Republic of China government running those companies at a loss for the most part until they get enough market share and they take over and no one else is making it and then they can jack the price up. Yeah. And that's exactly. ultimately going to happen with some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, it's a bargain now, but what happens when they've got total, the total market and you're totally dependent upon it? Question back there. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, and I'm just interested to learn more about the competition between U.S. and China in certain countries like South America and Africa. Can you talk more on that? Thank you. Did you hear my question? Is this working? Uh, you're, you're, uh, uh, the, real, the work that China is doing with other countries in South America. Yes, the competition and, and, between and so China on. and so certainly an America. Example, that would be yeah. brokering the deal between Iran and, mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia would yeah. be the current, uh, current event sort of mm -hmm. element there. Well, I mean, China's doing you know, a lot. I mean, they're, they're building infrastructure around the world. They generally bring in uh, most of the workers. Uh, and these things are not free, and a number of them have either deteriorated, not worked out, uh, and um, but they still. But these co countries are then on the hook to China for the loans they took uh, from the Chinese, and this is a pretty regular occurrence. It's happened numerous times in Africa and elsewhere, where the project ultimately failed, but they still have to pay pay the bills. So, um, you know. They are, you know, they are using, for the most part, through Belt and Road, it's oriented toward economics. But now with ports, uh, as they control more and more ports, um, you know, Djibouti is the only one that is, uh, you know, overtly used regularly by the Chinese uh, Navy. But they are getting a foothold in ports all around the world. Uh, where their ultimate plan is we are going to be able to use those in times of crisis, and we can then spread our naval sea power around the world. So, um, you know, these are, it's, a, it's an interesting diplomatic, economic uh, struggle that's going on, 
And you know, the U.S. has pulled back a lot on uh, on those sorts of things overseas, and and we've left the, we've left the gap, and the Chinese are filling that gap, and we we need to rethink a, a lot of what we're doing. Question? Hi, uh, thanks for the discussion. Um, I, I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on the impact of kind uh, of uh, French shoring and uh, just U.S. big U.S. manufacturers. Apple, uh, of course, is a big example, a big recent example. Kind of moving production out of China into other countries. How how much do you think that'll hurt China's uh, sort of shipping dominance, or or have a kind of knock-on effect on on the ways that they can they can dominate if a lot of their basic manufacturing moves out? Well, it depends on the locale to, to some extent. Uh, as I think we pointed out earlier, 95% of the Asian trade is controlled by three conglomerates. And one of those is you know, uh, totally dominated by the Chinese, another partially, and one uh, not so much. Uh, you know, but, uh, but you know, it depends upon basically the, the location. I mean, it, you know, if they grow more and more dominant in shipping, you know, it, it's where are you going to go? I mean, except maybe Europe uh, with Maersk, you know, and uh, or wherever Maersk serves. So, you know, it, it's, I mean, and of course, a lot of what you're talking about, the electronics, a lot of that comes by air. I mean, they're not putting that stuff in containers on ships. So that hasn't been as much of a problem. Uh, you know, except of course during COVID, uh, when you know flights were grounded and all that. So, um, you know, that is something that at this point in time, where you know they can't dominate, and we can, you know, U.S., you know, FedEx, UPS can pick the stuff up and bring it here to the United States for certain. A lot of those consumer goods you're talking about. So in that case, it, it will work. When you get to bigger, heavier items that have to go by sea, it's going to be more difficult. Like for instance, if uh, you know, if someone was to begin to really uh, compete with the Chinese on, uh, you know, the uh, ship to short cranes, uh, huge, you know, uh, and so those are all, you know, they all have to go on. In fact, they have to go on special ships. So, and the Chinese have built the special ships. I don't know if anybody else has built those kind of special ships to carry those things whole. We have a little bit of experience with that, but uh, yeah, the, the uh, th that that's actually a proposal that the ports authorities are. are uh, 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 supporting at this point to to start to, to reshore some of the uh, crank construction uh, to try and reduce that. I'm not sure whether uh, reshoring is or nearshoring or friendshoring uh, is going to. Um, uh, well, the more it happens, the more it would, and the more the threat that it continues to happen, the more likely it is that the Chinese will, you know, play better. They'll play by the rules more. So there's less vulnerability to our supply chains when that happens, I think. And so, so we've talked about Central America based on you know, the, my experience, the, the, the benefit of going there. You get, you get the lo lower labor rate. Onshoring is best of all if they can make that work. But uh, um, ultimately, it, it's about diversifying supply chains, sourcing decisions. And that's a really important part of all of this, I think. But, but it doesn't really address, but I think the part that gets overlooked is, is the maritime logistics supply, the, the, the shipping part of it. Because if, if, if the shipping is controlled by, is overly controlled by China, we are in, 
we are vulnerable to them, in my in my opinion, and we need to try and mitigate that vulnerability. Right. There's a gentleman in the middle there. Okay, thank then that guy would be next. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes, thank you so much for the discussion. So I just want your both of your thoughts on IPEF. Um, and, you know, IPEF is basically on building this resilience, supply chain resilience, especially for Southeast Asia. And then you mentioned about the Philippines, you know, and mo most of Southeast Asian countries, you know, still have problems with standards. Um, so, you know, and... On the U.S. side, you know, there's no no talks on tariffs. You know, uh, there there are a lot of markets potentials in Southeast Asia, and they want to get into the U.S. market, but you know, there's no discussion much on tariffs. So, you know, what are the alternatives that the United States can offer to Southeast Asia? And, and I know this is a very difficult question to to tackle because I'm I'm originally from Thailand, and so we have not have you know FTAs you know directly from the U.S. and Thailand. So, you know, if there's any efforts, any thoughts uh, thoughts on that so far in Congress? Thank you. Well, you're a little beyond my particular area of expertise yeah. on, on that. Um, does it, I mean, China in the uh, WTO? I mean, uh, is uh, Thailand? Yeah, in the, yeah, so you're in the WTO. So you're getting Schedule One tariffs, which are the lowest tariffs. They're virtually insignificant. I mean, um, you know, the, the, uh, the high, our, our average is 3.4%, which is lower than any other uh, trading nation in the world uh, under, under schedule, the schedule we have submitted to the WTO under Schedule 1. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I mean, Thailand is already getting, uh, you know, good, the same access uh, as China. Of course, uh, you know, that's probably a problem <laughs> that they're getting the same access as China because... The Chinese are probably subsidizing more than the Thai government. I mean, I, I don't, you know, not intimately familiar with the comparison between two systems, but I think that uh, Thailand is is not uh, does not have large state-owned uh, enterprises in Thailand, and it's mostly more entrepreneurial and, and capital-based. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. So yeah. So you're still at a disadvantage, unfortunately, even though you are getting the uh, the tariff the same tariff abatement. That's why I'm arguing that. We should move China off of PNTR and begin to condition or take away that and put them on Schedule 2. Uh, and uh, then that would be a great advantage to countries like Thailand when suddenly the average tariff goes from 3.4% to almost 24%. Uh, then your goods would become way more competitive coming into the U.S. than the Chinese goods. Um, thank you for the discussion today. Um, I'm interested in cranes um, and other enabling aspects of port management and all the darker things and interested in what you, um, what particularly scares you and what you think we ought to do. It goes, you know, it goes back to the resilience question, you know, particularly as we look at national security um, implications. Thanks. Sure. Well, um, you know, I talked a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, Haifa, where they control the port, and they can obviously, you know, know what the movement of the U.S. ships in and out is. Uh, well, the same thing with cranes. It's like the, you can, you know, basically they can be tapping into what is going on what ship and where is it going uh, as they're loading the ship. 
which would, you know, if, if we got into more of a time of conflict or something strategic or tactical we needed to do, uh, it, unfortunately, they would have the intelligence, right, just from right from that spot. Now, people say, oh, there's fixes, you know, we can tape over the cameras, we can do this, we can do that. That's not, that's not the solution, just so we can get a, a cheaper crane. I mean, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a bigger issue than that. Right. And, you know, we, can, we used to make cranes, beautiful cranes here. I mean, you know, uh, and we could make them again and not have to worry about what sort of, uh, you know, software is in them and what, you know, and, and where it's transmitting the data as it loads the ship and what they're going to do with it. And it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be with conflict. It can be just competitive, you know. I mean, this gives them an unfair competitive advantage. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're lading the ship with this to go there, and it's like, uh, you know, okay, well, then we can figure out a way that we might get that market instead. I mean, it's a, it's a number of the Well, ports. just to build on that, I think yeah. it's uh, the, uh, the owner of the Chinese uh, crane maker was quoted five years ago saying, we, we sell systems or something to that effect. In other words, what's, what's valuable is not picking the, the box off the ship and putting it on the, on the dock, it's the information that we can derive from all of that and we can dice, slice and dice that and sell that back to you and others just like is done throughout the consumer economy today. You slice your card at the grocery store and, and that, that information gets sliced and diced and sold to, and, and, uh, and, and you know, so it's, the information is really powerful in the, in the, in the consumer peacetime setting and, and you, know, to, to, you know, that's, in, in some respects that's competition, um, but it's also a real concern in, in the context of a, of a, a, a global competitor that doesn't have our best interests in mind and that is government controlled. Um, and and uh, you know, whether it's peacetime or in, in war, I think there's real concerns about that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. so it's a critical part of infrastructure. It's something yep. we haven't uh, really thought about before. <laughs> right. Front row, yeah. Hi, um, how, how important do you think um, sustainable fuels are for the ships themselves? It's one area I think that um, the U.S. has a narrative, U.S. companies um, with sustainable fuels against our CCP counterparts. Um, some companies, it's very nascent industry, but companies like uh, Interlake, Matson, Crowley, Pesha are all on the cutting edge of actual greener fuels, which is something that the Chinese companies and their shipping companies especially have been resistant to. So with all these other areas that we're being at a disadvantage narrative-wise, how important is it that we push the sustainable fuel side of things? Well, in so many aspects of society, it's incredibly important. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about electricity, but hydrogen has got to be a solution, uh, you know, particularly in shipping, uh, potentially in aviation. Uh, and, of course, the question is, how do you obtain the hydrogen? Uh, you know, there's like four or five kinds of hydrogen they label them. There's, there's like brown hydrogen. That means, you know, it's just made out of regular natural gas and the methane, you know, escapes or CO2 escapes. And uh, then there's blue where the com oil companies say, oh, well, we're going to capture all of the CO2 or, you know, excess methane emissions, and we're going we're to sequester it some in the ground somehow. Uh, and then you move on to uh, green. Uh, and how do you produce the green? A green, you can produce green hydrogen merely by cracking water. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's 
could be very sustainable if you're using renewable power to crack the hydrogen. Uh, but you know, it's a very nascent, uh, very nascent industry. I mean, part of the IRA, the investment, uh, you know, reduction, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, very ineptly named because every, every time you say IRA, people start thinking about their retirement accounts. I mean, my accountant called me and said, "What's this big IRA bill going to do to my clients?" And I said, "Nothing." Um, so, um, you know, the. Um, there's, they're they're going to uh, subsidize six hydrogen hubs, and there's like there's a bunch of applications, uh, with all different technologies in different parts of the country, uh, and you even move, you know, and um, you know, so there's like a, just one little tiny example, but there's a transit district in Champaign Urbana, and they had fuel cell buses, and they wanted to go green, and they couldn't afford electric, so they said, well, how how could we do green hydrogen? And they went to the university, and the university partnered with them, built a solar array. They're cracking water, and they're producing their own green hydrogen, and, and there's a market for it, too. And so they've got surplus more than they need. Um, and then there's pink hydrogen, which is produced by nuclear power. And we're potentially moving toward modular nuclear reactors, uh, which are going to be standardized. They're not going to have cost overruns. They don't have safety or security issues. You still have the waste issue to deal with. These were first developed at Oregon State University. There's now a couple of companies that are in the approval pro process. So we have different ways of producing hydrogen, uh, and there's tremendous promise there. Uh, you know, other sustainable fuels in terms of, bio I mean, I read about something that I totally don't understand. Uh, it's in California, and they can take any kind of mixed waste, and they can subject to a plasma torch, and they turn it into, the carbon comes out uh, solid, and that's apparently marketable for something, and then they create hydrogen. I don't know how it works. I mean, there's a, a lot of cutting-edge technology out there, but now we're having conflicts between, because there's so little uh, SAF out there, sustainable aviation fuel, you know, and then they're worried about, you know, trucking moving to hydrogen, and so we've really got to get, uh, we've really got to get ahead of this, because, I mean, electricity is not going to be the solution for aviation, uh, even though some people are experimenting with hybrids, um, and it's, and it may or may not be the solution for long-distance trucking in this, in this country, uh, you know, because of the current battery technology, it's really cold, and, you know, and the charging takes uh, quite a while, and there aren't, at this point, we don't have any, uh, really, a charging network. That's also part of the IIJA and the IRA is to build out a network, and theoretically we're going to build out a charging network that is, uh, you know, being run by sustainable power. So that's why all the investment in wind and solar and all those things. So uh, we are finally taking some very big steps uh, in that direction. And I don't know if that answered your question, but it's a you know. more or less. Yeah, okay. That was a good good answer. I, yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly learned a few things. Yeah. Uh, I think we're about out of time, aren't we? Um, uh, we? We could take one more if anybody has a burning question they want to they put. All right, well, I, I want to stop and just say thank you, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Chairman. It's been really good discussion from my perspective. Uh, we've certainly learned a lot, and we, again, I want to thank you for your service in Congress and your, your dedication to, to, this, to this country. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you're a great example for young members of Congress coming up and in terms of taking this seriously and doing the best you can. And you did a great job and we really appreciate being with you today and, and learning from you. 36 Thank years, you. I never expected to stay that long. It, it, I, we checked with the House of Story before I retired. 
Out of 14,400 people who've served in Congress, I'm the 65th longest serving member. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Or, but well, anyway. Well, anyway, thank you so much. <laughs>